Thank you. Love that singing. My one time uh, in our family uh, worship, when my daughter was very young, we were singing that Timothy Dwight hymn, uh, "I Love Thy Church, O Lord," which we loved. And uh, she got to that line about being the apple of the eye, and then she said, "And gravy." on his hands or something like that. And we began to laugh and we've never been able to forget that. My wife is pointing that out. (laughs) By the way, Timothy Dwight, are you aware of him? He was the president of Yale, probably the beginning of the second great awakening. He's usually dated back to that in 1795 when in a very profane college, hardly find a Christian in there, he began to uh, give chapel messages that uh, were convicting and God used them and that it's often the day, given as the day to the beginning. Great things happened in the school. Many were converted, and then larger things began to happen. So praise the Lord for that. I have Timothy Dwight in my house. Uh, I actually have the Billy Graham School. Do you remember the Billy Graham School at Wheaton uh, Museum that was there, if you've ever been there, years ago? And they revamped things, and I got Timothy Dwight and Azahel Nettleton. They're huge, uh, you know. And that's in my study, and they kind of point the way, okay, to me. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we're full of gratefulness as we sing. We love it because we believe it's true, and you often move us by the things that we sing. Uh, These are songs of the heart because we believe them. They, They are true, and... They ring true, not only from the Bible standpoint, but in our own experience. So we're grateful, Lord, for that opportunity to sing those things to you and to offer our day to you, the rest of this day to you. Help us in this session, Lord. Please help us to understand the life of this man, George Mueller, and gain insight from those who've gone before us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, George Mueller was uh, 35 years of age. It was November the 8th, 1840, a couple of centuries ago. Uh, He was sitting in his office on Wilson Street where he began the orphanages that would be under his care for the rest of of the 1800s pretty much and and on beyond after he died. But uh, he reached over the desk and he picked up a diamond ring and he was looking at it and meditating about what had just happened. Somebody had given him this diamond ring, not for his wife to wear. If she was a brethren woman, that would have been audacious. She had never done anything like that. But was given to uh, him to sell, actually, and to use the money to help feed the orphans that were in his care in the beginning of his orphan work. He was so impressed at what the Lord had done, he turned his chair around and he leaned leaned back and uh, there on the on the uh, window, he scratched two words with that diamond ring. And those two words were Jehovah Jireh, which means, as you know, the Lord provides. This uh, declaration of who God is was proven to be true, I suppose we could say thousands of times in his life uh, in incredible ways that have influenced so many people. I, I'm a big biography reader. I maybe have several hun- I have several hundred biographies in my collection, and always like to keep those keep my heart warm by reading biographies along with everything else. And um, uh, it's really interesting that so many people refer back to George Mueller as a person through which they learned 
life lessons that, especially about faith, trusting in God. He is the illustration, the best illustration I know to, from my perspective, from my experience, uh, to tell us something about living by faith in God. Um, he would live from basically the whole of the 1800s until 1898. And he was a man of prayer. He was a man of faith. He was most noted for, of course, his orphanages that he had, through which he kept literally thousands of people, over 10,000 people in his lifetime, uh, all looking to the Lord only for all the supplies that he needed. This was in Bristol, England. He was, a, he was not from Bristol originally. He had a German accent. He was a Prussian man, but he uh, found his way to Bristol, England, which we'll learn as we go on through the story. He had some principles by which he lived, and these principles come through, they're, they're interwoven throughout his whole life. One thing is that he believed that one should not be in any kind of debt, so he eschewed the idea of debt completely. He never did his work by debt, never did his, lived his personal life by debt. He just he felt like that the Lord would provide or we, it wasn't something we needed, you know. Secondly, he never solicited for funds. Now, this is something he was free to do, though he realizes that some Christians could do that without being doing the wrong thing, but he, he knew that. But he felt that the Lord was calling him to never solicit in order to prove some things, to prove that God really is, is who he says he is. He never revealed the state of the funds. He, he, he wanted to demonstrate that uh, God was meeting the needs, so he never used the presentation of the state, current state of the funds to ever garner any support. In fact, one time when he was going, one year when he was going to send out the annual report, because he did want to praise God for all that he had done, that was part of his objective, uh, he purposely canceled uh, sending it out for a long time because he was afraid their dour straits would actually move people. It would be the perceived to be kind of a, a way to generate funds, and uh, he just wanted to look to the Lord alone. He received everything in answer to prayer, he, um, and he was a person who wanted to do everything that he did on the basis of, uh, of scriptural reason and scriptural uh, truths. He received in his life over uh, $7.5 million dollars in 1899 currency. Now, in 1899, my grandfather was working for 50 cents a day as a school teacher. So if you can calculate that in any way, you'll know that it's quite a bit of money in today's buying power. All of this by answer to prayer. Uh, it's just an amazing life. Early in the summer of 1897, this was about really less than a year before he died, a man by the name of Mr. Parsons came to visit him. And Charles Parson asked him, he said, you've always found the Lord faithful in his promises? The reply was, always, always, for nearly 70 years, every need in connection with this work has been supplied. The orphans from the first until now have numbered 9,500 but they have never lacked a meal, never. Hundreds of times we have commenced the day without a penny in hand, but our Heavenly Father 
has sent supplies by the moment they were actually required. There never was a time when we had no wholesome meal. He, he believed if the Lord failed to do these things, it was an indication he needed to stop this work. During all these years, I have been, he said, went on to say, I have been enabled, by, uh, enabled to trust in God, in the living God, and in him alone. 1,400,000 pounds, British pounds, have been sent to me in answer to prayer. We have needed as much as 50,000 pounds in one year, and it has all come by the time it has been needed. No man on earth can say that I've ever asked him for a penny. We have no committee. I like this part. You'll like this. Those are your leaders. We have no committees, no collectors, no voting, and no endowments. All has come in answer to believing prayer. My trust has been in God alone. He has many ways of moving the hearts of men to help us all over the world. While I am praying, he speaks to this one and to another on this continent and on that to send help. He was born in 1805 in Kropenstadt, Prussia. Prussia uh, is roughly the old East Germany. Um, he was a profligate kid. He would, he would lie and steal. He... His father wanted him to be a Lutheran minister because his father was a government worker. He was a tax collector, and he knew that if he got a government job, he would have a good stipend for the rest of his life. And he, after all, the father needed to be taken care of in his old age. The night of his mother's death, uh, as a young man, uh, Mueller was out at the tavern. He was playing cards until about 2 in the morning. Uh, he said... He said, her death made absolutely no impression on me whatsoever. He, three days before his confirmation and confession committed in, into the Lutheran church, uh, he committed gross immorality, and then he lied to the clergyman at confession. He spent a month in jail at age 16. He would go out and have holiday uh, different places, enjoy some inn someplace, and then he'd make a run for it. This time he got caught. And he was thrown in jail, and his dad let him stew there for about a month before he delivered him. They went to Switzerland, some friends, when he was in college, and he was the one who kept the money. And he said they forged documents, but he said he acted like Judas. It only cost him about two-thirds of what it cost the other men. These were his close friends. So you can see what kind of man, selfish man he was as he, as he uh, grew up uh, as a young man and went to college before he was converted to Christ. So this immoral young man went to Halle through a series of interesting turns in his life, not where his father wanted him to go, but he ended up at Halle, which is, uh, you can still go there today and see the same buildings that were there uh, when he was there, a place in, in a way made, uh, it was really founded by pietists, German Lutheran pietists, um, many years before. He went to Halle to go to school, and it was there at, at Halle he was converted to Jesus Christ through a friend named Beta. Beta was a fellow that he'd actually known in another school, and one day when he was in the tavern, he looked across the way, and he saw Beta there, and Beta was a more serious-minded fellow, and he thought to himself, since I'm here, and I'm supposed to be a Lutheran minister, and by the way, he didn't even own a Bible. He had 300 French novels, but he didn't own a Bible yet. But he looked across that way in the tavern, and he saw Beta, and he said, uh, you know, I, I need to get to know Beta again. He's a more serious-minded person. Maybe he'll help me be the kind of person I need to be. 
Beta, at the same time, had looked across and seen Mueller, the life of the party, and he said, you know, if I would get to know Beta again a little bit better, maybe he'd liven up my social life. So they got together. Uh, But eventually, this young man who had real strong leanings uh, toward Christ was invited to a prayer meeting in the home of a Mr. Wagner. He was an old sea captain and uh, had a big home in in Bristol, and he was invited to this uh, prayer meeting. And while walking between the corridors of the big buildings there that were at Holly, uh, Beta told this to, to George Mueller. Immediately, George Mueller felt like he wanted to go. Now, this was totally uncharacteristic of him. He didn't do anything like this, actually. And, uh, but he had this longing to go to that prayer meeting. And so he insisted that he would go, and they went together to Mr. Wagner's house. And on a Saturday night, he said, We sat down and we sang a hymn. And then Brother Kaiser, now a missionary in Africa, knelt and prayed or asked a blessing on our meeting. His kneeling made a deep impression on me. I'd never seen anybody on their knees before, nor had I ever prayed on my knees. Now, the reason for that is Prussians pray standing up. He read a chapter of the Bible and a printed sermon. At that time, it was disallowed. They were disallowed to actually preach any sermon if they weren't an ordained minister, and they didn't have an ordained minister there. So he read a sermon, read a chapter of the Bible and a printed sermon. At the end of the meeting, we sang another hymn, and then the owner of the house prayed, Mr. Wagner. And while he prayed, I thought to myself, I could not pray as well, although I have more education than this man. When he was coming home with Beta, he said, The entire evening made a deep impression on me. I have felt happy as though I had been asked, as though, although if I had been asked why, I could not have clearly explained it. When we walked home, he said, uh, I said to Beta, in his journal, he said, I said to Beta, Everything we've seen on our journey to Switzerland and all of our former pleasures are nothing in comparison with this evening. Of course, this day at the beginning of the work of God in his life, he would visit Mr. Wagner Wagner some more. He's the unsung hero of this thing. And visit his home more until he was soundly converted and had assurance that he was a believer in Christ. Uh, An amazing thing. I'm always stopped here at this point, just kind of just wonder in a way uh, about how it is something so... That's pretty mundane prayer meeting, right? Nothing really very special about that prayer meeting. And yet, look what God does when he attracts a person to himself. The beauty of Christ is irresistible. It's remarkable, I think. But we all, in a way, have that story. He had gone to London after this to apply at the London Missionary Society uh, he, he felt like he, he needed to be a missionary. He was very zealous. He felt like he needed to be a missionary. And, and um, so they, uh, they allowed him to, to consider that possibility. But he had some strong convictions. He was a man of a lot of convictions. I don't know whether he was right or wrong on these. He said it, it was wrong to wait on a man to commission him. He said that was unscriptural. After all, Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the Holy Spirit. And, and then he said, I felt like that I should be allowed to go where, wherever I want to. 
and where God would lead me instead of being directed by men. And, of course, they politely refused him. (laughs) Eventually, though, he was uh, led to a little town there outside of London in East Anglia, a little town called Tynemouth, just a small place. And there were some people who prevailed upon him to come and join them. They, they were sort of re, reopening a small chapel, just had a, a few, few souls that wanted to have a, a chapel there again. And, and, uh, and he, he decided he would help them, at least for a period of time, with no, with no um, commitment to be there forever, because uh, at the time he had already begun some itineration, and he... He thought maybe he was tossed about whether he needed to stay or not stay. Uh, But he did stay there a while, and it was there that he met uh, Henry Craik, whose name plays really large in his life. Henry Craik was a pastor of another church, and they became bosom friends and worked together the rest of their lives. Uh, It was here also in this little town of Tynemouth that he met and married his wife, Miss Mary Groves. Now, she must have been a remarkable woman. Because when they got married, they gave up all of their possessions and they started poor, looking to the Lord for, for help. Now one day, Craig, Henry Craig, who was a, who was, was a very smart man, he wrote two or three books on doctrine and so forth, he's a very smart fellow. Uh, Henry Craig was invited to come to Bristol uh, in the southern part of England and and, uh, you know, lead a, work in a church and, and do some preaching over a period of time. And, and he insisted on taking his friend, uh, German-speaking George Mueller, with him and take him along to help. Henry Craig was the much more proficient teacher than, than um, Mueller was at that point, much more effective teacher, he felt. George Mueller himself felt very strongly. And uh, they went and they went to Bristol, and amazing things happened. Many people were converted to Christ. So the people there in in Bristol at Bethesda Chapel uh, asked him if they would ask Craig if they would consider coming back and 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 actually pastoring this church and seeing what God would do. Well, they didn't want to make an immediate decision just on the emotion of it, so they went back to their back to Tynemouth and. The, uh, the neighboring city where uh, Henry lived, and and they prayed together, soon feeling like God really did want them to go. They moved to Bristol then, and it's from Bristol in the southern part of England where that's, that's where the, the big things began to happen in George Mueller's life. There are three big things that occurred in Bristol. And uh, one is uh, he, he started an organization, and not only did he pastor, that outside of his pastoring, I mean, there were three other things, one is he, he started an, an organization called the SKI, or the Scriptural Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad. They had a penchant for these long, long titles. And um, uh, out, of, out of this, I'll explain in a minute, were several good things that happened. Then he is known for beginning the orphanage there, which is the main thing people remember about George Mueller. And, of course, there he also began uh, something that most people don't know about. He began to have a long period of time where he was, uh, he was doing missionary-type uh, work in various countries of the world. So I'll, I'll just briefly tell you these things and help us get a little feel for this man's life. So um, the SKI, um, 
So in addition to all the pastoral work, by the way, let me just say he not only pastored in Bethesda, but he and Henry together worked in another chapel that was opened up called Gideon. Both of those ended up having several hundred people. So in anything I say, he's carrying on all these pastoral things that he's doing as well. So it's a remarkable amount of labor. I I find this often by reading uh, biographies. These men really worked, and they had a lot on their plate that they did. They They were not unwilling to take on things and to do things for the Lord. Um. So the Scriptural Knowledge Institute was a, was a kind of a, 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 an organ to actually assist, in, uh, assist and start, rather start day schools uh, where the Bible would be taught around the continent of Europe. Uh, actually, over in Sunday schools and adult schools, these kind of just schooling where they could make the Bible as part of the curriculum, interestingly enough. And uh, over his lifetime, they educated, and I get this, this is, you don't even know about this, you know about the orphanage probably, but most people don't even know this is going on, but he educated 123,000 students through that. It's a major operation all around, all through Europe. They circulated the scriptures and tracts and other uh, Christian literature, um, they gave those away typically. Occasionally they sold them for basically cost if they thought that was the better thing to do uh, for the ownership of it. They aided missionary efforts. At, at one point in his journal he writes, I noticed that he writes they were supporting 187 missionaries uh, in whole or in part through the SKI. So they were asking the Lord, in other words, for money, not soliciting from anybody else, but they were asking the Lord and then than doing this work through, through, uh, through this organization that they had, they had started. They supported, for instance, um, they, he was friends of Hudson Taylor. You've heard of Hudson Taylor. Worked in the inland of China. And uh, Hudson Taylor, in his formative years, visited. George Muley brought some of his young men who wanted to be missionaries and so forth with him there. And, and George Mueller said, I prayed for him every day. And Roger Steer, who said that uh, in his, uh, who was a student of Mueller and has written of Mueller, um, he said in his uh, in his work on Mueller, he discovered that he supported Mueller almost completely. I mean, excuse me, he supported, he imported, him, him, he took care of the the needs and requirements of Mueller completely uh, in the early years, uh, almost just completely. If I'm sorry, I'm getting mixed up. Hudson Taylor. I'm, I'm really all here. I'm, I'm okay. Uh, but, yeah, he, he supported him almost completely, if not completely. That's the way he put it. I was trying to get the phrase just right while my mind was talking. Uh, so, yeah, so he, he, he had a, a tremendous relationship with Hudson Taylor in this work. He just, like I said, he prayed for them every day. He was, he was deeply involved in this kind of work. Um, so... Um, the literature, by the way, just to get back to that issue, uh, Bible portions, uh, tracts, and so forth that were given out. By 1882, in one entry I found in his journal, he had already by that time given out 75,956,000 pieces of literature. Now, I do literature, and 
Let me tell you, I think, I don't know, if I, every day I went out in a bus and just threw boxes of literature out the window, I don't think I could get that many <laughs> things distributed. That is a lot to distribute. It's a huge amount. And, uh, wow, he really had an impact. And that was during a day where, you know, I found this in other parts of the world. There are parts of the world where if, if you threw out some, a piece of a tract out the window, people would scramble for it. I've actually seen that happen. Uh, people will scramble to read it. In our day, of course, in our world, our part of the world, that's we're just inundated, aren't we, with literature, and, and it doesn't mean as much. But uh, this was a day where literature like this was very effective, and so he was he was doing his best to spread the gospel that way. Um, he often took advantage of unique opportunities. For instance, he went to the Paris uh, Exposition, uh, and this was a very big big deal, uh, worldwide really. Two others went with him. They distributed 12,000 copies of Scripture in 13 languages. They went to Havre for the other exposition, did the same thing. When the door opened in Spain, they quickly took measures to go and circulate Bibles. They gave away 250 per hour. Same thing happened in Italy when the doors opened for uh, Scriptures. You know, there was a lessening of the Catholic dominance in a certain sense during that time. Uh, they did the same thing. And open-air services, he would, go, he would go in the open air, he would go to the races, he would go to the steeplechages, whatever they are. He, he would go to among the spectators in public executions, uh, on ships, on trains. You read a lot of times about those experiences that he had where he would be constantly distributing literature because, again, in that day it was very effective to, to pass Christian literature around. He was quite the evangelist in many ways. Now, you must have have a lot of money when you start a ministry like this, you know, with all those things going on. But when he started, um, really, until two days even after he began, he had only one shilling to his name. (laughs) So he had nothing. It It was all the sense of God's will that made him step out and do the thing and trust in God. Well, the orphanage, again, is the second thing that I think is most in people's mind. And let me just try to share a bit about that. Uh, he began on the basis of a, of a text of Scripture. Well, first of all, he was quite interested in the souls of little kids that were around the neighborhood. So on Wilson Street in Bristol, he began to, he felt like he should gather these kids together and maybe give them a little something to eat, try to teach the Bible to them, do what he could. But eventually, after a lot of prayer and a, and a passage that meant a lot to him in Psalm 81.10, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it, he began to have courage that maybe God would allow him to provide an orphanage. At that time, there were not, not uh, many ways for a person, these children, to be kept. They were just on the streets and wandering around. If you remember some of the 18, some of the Dickens, like Oliver Twist or something, you, you, you can get a little picture of what that would be like, perhaps. And uh, so he was quite concerned about that, and he prayed, and God gave him, God gave him the, the uh, conviction that he should begin and just trust him to see what would happen. He began, he built buildings. He had to, he didn't want to, he wanted to rent. He actually started out renting. He rented on Wilson Street, which had these sort of double window row houses that go up about three high three stories high, and he got one of those, and it could hold 26, and he got to the first day, and he announced publicly that he was going to take kids, and they were going to take care of the orphans, and 
if anybody knew of anybody, they could bring them and, and so forth. And he waited there in that front room, and nobody came. Nobody came. And uh, he was so disappointed. He, he, he went home, just drug his feet home, shoulders hanging down. He got back to his house, and he began to pray. He prayed for a long time. And, uh, you know, he just, he said, I, he said, what I realized is I trusted God for the silverware. I trusted God for the sheets. I trusted God for the beds. I trusted God for the plates. I really hadn't asked God to give me the orphans. I just thought they would be there. And he repented of that, he said, and he asked God. The next day there was a young woman who came, a little girl who was brought there. I saw her entry. I got the privilege of looking in the safe and seeing those original journals. That first entry of her name was in there. I think it was in the 1830s. And, uh, yeah, that was the first one. And before long, there were others. And, and, and then there were 26 filling up that little that row house. And he got a second row house uh, and filled that one up again. Then he got a third row house. And now neighbors are beginning to talk. Sanitation is a problem. Kids are running around out in the street, you know, and all of that. And he didn't want, he wanted to rent. He did, he felt like renting was more like the pilgrim nature of the Christian. And we don't need to really buy like we live here forever. And, but he was forced, of course, to, to make the decision to actually build a building. So he had to begin to pray. He asked God. He prayed really for 400 days. Quite a story. And eventually he was able to build the first building and get some property and called Ashley Down outside of town and build a first building. It's like a fortress. I mean, the walls are thick like that. It'll be there forever through, through whatever your belief about the millennium. And uh, <laughs> uh, then he eventually had more, uh, more kids in the 300s. He had to get another, build another building. He built then a third building. Then he built a fourth building. Over 25 years, he built five capacious buildings. They're still there today. Uh, in Ashley Down. Now it's incorporated more into the city. Um, and these these are amazing buildings. And it looks look almost like a college. If you can just imagine multi-story buildings. And the, these are quite, quite, edifice, uh, quite the edifices. And he, he, never, he never asked anybody for money. All of this was in answer to prayer. He would simply look to the Lord. Every part of it was just uh, amazing work of God. The story is quite incredible, which we can't go in we can't go into those details, but quite incredible that everything was supplied and continued then to be supplied until they grew to a stage where they filled up those buildings and they were actually taking care of two thousand orphans at a time. So in his lifetime, uh, it continued to go after his lifetime, but in his lifetime, in fact the organization is still there, um, he, he had taken care of 10,024 orphans under his care. And again, they all had to be fed. They all had to be dressed. They all had to be taken care of in every way. And there was no, nobody but God that he looked to. He simply refused to look to anybody else but the Lord. Well, um, he educated those students, too, by the way. And... Um, you know, you've got that to think about, don't you, when you've got all these kids. How do you do that? And, of course, they, they, they not only had never had, most of them had never had a clean place to sleep, but they had never even dreamed about being educated. And, uh, but he had, a, he had a very good process of educating 
these students, and overall, compared to the other schools around, they were in the 95, 96 percentile in their equivalent to the other schools, you know, compared to the other schools. He made classrooms with real high walls. You remember when you were in school, you'd look out the window. I just spent a lot of time just looking out the window like with my mouth open, you know, daydreaming. But he was a pretty smart guy. He built very high walls and put the windows up high in those classrooms. (laughs) And uh, they had a very effective way about them in educating people. All the kids worked. They plowed the ground or they sewed the socks up or they... They were all busy working as well, learning trades, learning so that they could be apprenticed out later or become uh, maids in homes or whatever the case might be, so that they would be able to have some kind of, uh, some kind of occupation when they were able to leave. So it's just an amazing thing. And, and thousands of them, thousands of people were saved. Not all of them. He was, he was a firm believer in in. Yeah, and God's choice about things like this. But he would mark it in his, I saw these things. They would be marked if they actually came to Christ. And uh, unfortunately, not every one of them did. But many, many people came out of that as believers in Jesus Christ. What a great thing that was, right? Amen to that. It's a beautiful story. Um, these These orphanages for many years were still in existence even until... Uh, just a few years ago, I, they, sometime in the maybe the mid mid century 1900s, they decided to move to less move out of an institutional context and move into a more cottage type concept, which is reasonable, isn't it? That's we understand that's a better situation with kind of a surrogate mom and dad to take care of them. They did that, and so they moved to a new location, a different place, and uh, a college took a hold of that, those buildings. And they're now put, however, just not that many years ago, were put on the National Register, so they will be saved and preserved. And I've been there many times. I presented uh, talk about Mueller in that very place. So, so you know, th- these are, can be visited. If you go to England you want to go to Bristol, you can actually see these buildings and walk through, walk through them and so forth. They're quite amazing, quite amazing place, and so much history took place right there. So, uh, at... The, the last thing that I want to mention, however, is that um, the, the, that out of Bristol came not only the SKI and the orphanages, but something, again, that most people are not really aware of. When he was early, early on in his uh, career, he tried to be a missionary. I told you about one occasion, but he actually tried five times to be a missionary. And every time, it just... It didn't, never came about. It could not work out for some reason or the other. Then when he was 70 years old, how many of you are 70 or above? Anybody here? Okay, we got a handful of us noble souls. Um, when he was 70 years old, just think about it. Just think of yourself. When he was 70, year old, 70 years old, he and his second wife, his first wife had died. He married another woman who was much hardier than his first wife. They were both godly women. Uh, she needed to be because she would kind of help him along, you know, through these, the, this period of time. From age 70 for 17 years till he was age 87, he traveled the world and preached the gospel, encouraged believers, speaking all, really all over the world. Uh, it's an incredible story in itself. Uh, just, if you can just think about your life and think of going back into the 1800s and doing it. 
For instance, uh, he was he went to a total of forty two countries, two hundred thousand miles of travel, which is the equivalent of eight times around the globe. He went to a lot of interesting. He came to the United States, by the way. He met Rutherford Hayes, actually. He climbed Mount Vesuvius. He looked at the smoke and the volcanoes, and he said, volcano, and he said, what cannot God do? <laughs> he went to India when he was 79. So think about yourself. We got some 79ers in here. He went to India when he was 79. He traveled through India. Let me see what my notes say. He traveled 21,000 miles in the conveyances of the day. He spoke over 200 times. It's almost like this week for me, you know. He spoke over 200 times, and he was going by that train, those difficult trains, you know, to go through all of that. Even today, when you go to India, you just always lose weight. I mean, that's always, that's, that's a good weight loss program if you're looking for something to do like that. So just it's incredible all that he did. He spoke five or 6,000 times. So these trips would be often a year in length. Some, once or twice it was two years in length. Sometimes he would faint and his wife would pick him up and get him going again. Right? It's incredible. And all this time the work back home was continuing. People would ask him, well, what happens if you're, long, if you're gone? You know, you're trusting God for these things. That you're praying and... He said, I'm, I'm just convinced that it's God's business. He can take care of it as well with me over here in India as he could if I were right there in the, in the buildings themselves. He had faith in God. He came back to Bristol when he was 93 years of age. He came back to Bristol when he was 87 years of age, and he lived until he was 93. When he was 93, he was going upstairs and... Uh, he, as he was walking up the stairs, one of the persons who helped, many people helped in the, really sacrificed their lives for these kids as well. And they asked him, can we get a nurse for you, somebody to stay with you through the night? He said, well, maybe tomorrow we could talk about that. And he went on up and retired for the evening. And the next morning they found him on the floor having gotten up to get milk and a biscuit, that's a cookie, he got milk and a biscuit beside his bed. He'd grabbed the cloth, tablecloth, and fell into heaven, I guess you could say, right? His funeral, they say, was just absolutely remarkable. Um, I've seen a picture of the funeral. It was just people were hanging from, you know, just from the gas lamps and looking out the windows of the buildings all around. There were just seemed like thousands of people there. The, the orphans were sort of marching in a row, all dressed in the clothes that they wore. Uh, their earthly father, the only father they had really known, many of them, uh, had died. It was quite a scene, they said, that just an emotional scene that took place there in Bristol, Bristol England. People's hearts melted at the tears of the children. Now, there are lessons to learn. That's, I want to get that background for the lessons that we can learn in two simple areas. He was a simple man. He, wasn't, he was very intelligent, but he was simple in the way he thought about the Christian life. Um, I, want, I want to say some things to you about his 
use of the Bible, and then I want to talk to you about prayer, uh, his, his view of prayer, and how, how things went for him in that area. Um, I said he was a smart man, by the way, he knew seven languages, uh, and uh, he would read it. He didn't buy a lot of books. He believed that, uh, you know, really he, he just focused mostly on the Bible. But he, he would use those different languages to read through and get extra meditation benefits out of those languages that he knew, plus Greek and Hebrew, of course. So quite a, quite a smart man, actually. Um, let's talk about his use of the Bible. He, he really had a, a strong belief that the things that he would do in his life and ministry need to be Bible-directed, directed by the head of the church, by God. Uh, and Christ to through the the Scripture uh, the, itself, and he he wanted a biblical basis for everything. He wanted to be sure that he believed what the Bible said. He wanted to be sure that he acted the way God had revealed in the Bible to act. This was really he was adamant about this, and uh, he worked hard to to try to know the truths of Scripture. He read through the Bible two hundred times. He'd read about four times a year through the Bible. So that's a pretty hefty amount of reading. With all, just think about all the busyness of his life, pastoring, all the, the organization going on, liter, literature going out, thousands of kids here, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kids, 2,000 kids to be fed, uh, the finances, which were huge to, to deal with, uh, did they have enough and whatever. And uh, this was going on daily. But he really took a lot of time with the Word of God so that he would have, you know, the confidence that he was doing the right thing. Everything was God's work, so he just wanted to make sure he didn't make any wrong turns uh, in, in, his, in his life. He said, um, yeah, uh, yeah, let me read that later. So he, he, he just loved, he loved the Bible, and he, he used the Bible excessively, in his life, and he also learned. He said he learned a lesson. He said he, he used to he used to uh, be a man who would consult a lot of commentaries. Um, now, here here's the information I'm looking for. I'm sorry, I've got too many notes up here. But he uh, he was a person who, like a lot of a lot of people, was was a man of books. He was an educated man. He was a college man. He'd gone through, and he could use those books, but. He decided early on in his life that um, he would put aside all commentaries and almost every other book, and he would, and simply he he would try to 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 learn what to do by reading the Word of God and studying and meditating on the Scripture. Now, he, he wasn't saying other people didn't know things more than him, but he, he felt like that he should have this discipline in his life to do that. He said, the result of this was that the first evening that I shut myself into my room to give myself to prayer and meditation over the Scriptures, I learned more in a few hours over the Scriptures. I learned more in a few hours than I had done during a period of several weeks previously. But the particular difference was this, that I received real strength for my soul in doing so. So do you get the idea? Because to George Mueller, uh, 
it was God's plan for us to meditate on the scripture and the blessings were given to the meditation that we have on the scripture, not short-circuiting the meditation, uh, you know, by going right to the, finding an answer, you know, getting a commentary that gives you an answer or something of that nature. So he really believed that the meditation was part of the process. You may learn less, perhaps, than some erudite scholar may, but in, when you pull out those books, they're all, they all differ. They differ in their, their interpretation. So are you going to get this person with this belief set or that person with that belief set and you have this problem? So he just, he just decided he would give himself not to the books but to give himself to the book. And that was a peculiar thing about him. And I think he, he demonstrated that the Lord really ignited his soul. And that made him a different kind of preacher, a speaker and teacher. And it, it also just enlivened him. Right, by going to the scripture. Um, so he, he, was, he was quite a Bible man. I'm looking, I'm sorry about these notes. They're a little bit jumbled here. Um, so he, he also was a man, we'll just grow out to write to prayer. He was also a great man of prayer. He, he believed he had seen over 50,000 answers to prayer that he could document. So he was very careful. He was a very careful German mind, you know, and he just... He would document everything that happened, kept very uh, tight journals, you know, with everything that was recorded. You can still read those journals, and I've read through many of those. I have probably this many books on George Mueller's life. Uh, but you can still read those journals, and, and, and they're quite amazing uh, just for their detail. Yeah, 50,000 answers to prayer, 30,000 answered the same day or hour in which they were requested but he said, not always so. Not always so. He said, but you may suppose all my prayers have been thus promptly answered. No, not all of them. Sometimes I've had to wait for weeks, months, or years. Sometimes many years. The man speaking at the present time whom God has delighted to honor by giving 30,000 answers to prayer in the same hour or day in which they were offered This same man has had to wait many years for answers to many of his prayers. During the first six weeks of the year 1866, I heard of the conversion of six persons for whom I had been praying for a long time. For one, I had been praying between two and three years. For another, between three and four years. For another, above seven years. For another, the fourth, above ten years. The fifth, above fifteen years. And for the sixth, above twenty years. He said, I once asked a thing of God which I knew to be his will and to be according to his mind. And though I brought it to him day by day, generally many times a day, in such assurance as to be able to thank him hundreds of times for the answer before it had been received. Yet I had to wait three years and ten months until the blessing was given to me. And another time I had to wait six years. Another time, eleven and a half years. In the last case, I brought the matter. Get this now. I brought the matter about 20,000 times before God, and invariably in the fullest assurance of faith, and yet 11 and a half years passed before the answer was given. Hmm. Something to learn there, isn't there? In one instance, he said, my faith has been tried even more than this. In November 44, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without one single interruption. 
whether sick and in health, on the land or on the sea, whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thank God. I prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed. Then the second was converted. I thank God for the second. I prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I, can, I continued to pray for them. And six more years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. The man to whom God in his riches and his grace has given tens of thousands of answers to prayer in the same hour or day in which they were offered has been praying day by day for nearly 30,000 years. Excuse me, 36 years. Whoa, that's pretty incredible. Uh, You can tell I'm tired. You know, this eighth, seventh time in the last two, three days. Okay, so this man had been praying day by day for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these two individuals. And yet they remain unconverted at the time he, he was, uh, at the time he, he mentions this. For next November, it will be 36 years since I began to pray for their conversion, but I hope in God. I pray on and I look for the answer. That was 1880. He died in 1893. One of the two was converted right before he died. And the other one became a Christian right after his death, after his funeral. Let's look about something, something, something about the method that he uses, okay? Let me see if I can find that for us. I think that might be helpful to, helpful to us. Uh, he mentions uh, four things that, that I think we could think about here for just a minute. Um, he said... In order to have your prayers answered, he said, you need to make your request unto God on the ground of the merits and the worthiness of the Lord Jesus. So this is critical. You know, we tack on that little phrase in the Lord's name, but I think uh, he had a different view of sort of laboring to make sure he was on that ground. You know what I mean? That he was really expecting us on the merits of Christ, not in his own merits. That's... He took that very seriously, not just a little phrase. And secondly, he said that the things which you ask of God should be of such a kind that God can give them to you because they are for his honor and your real good. And the third place, he said, we yet need, lastly, to continue in prayer until the answer is given. He said, um, he said, it's not enough to begin to pray, nor to pray aright, nor is it enough to continue for a time to pray, but we must patiently, believingly continue in prayer until we obtain an answer. And then a fourth place, he says, and further, we have not only to continue in prayer until the end, but we have also to believe that God does hear us and will answer our prayers. Now, this is quite a statement he'll make for a guy who had 50,000 answers to prayer. I think we can listen to somebody like that, right? He's got a little evidence that he knows something about prayer. But he said, most frequently, we fail in not continuing in prayer. Would you agree with that? I think that's true. We don't continue in prayer until the blessing is given. And in not expecting the blessing. As assuredly, he said, as any individual, uh, as these various points are found united in any individual, 
so assuredly answers will be granted to his request. That's a considerable, considerably strong statement, isn't it? But this is what he believed. Okay. So I'll read that again. Okay. As assuredly as in any individual these various points are found united, so assuredly answers will be granted to his request. Okay. Is that clearer? So, you know, that's, I just think that's a remarkable thing to put yourself on the line saying, right, that if you, if, if you did these things. But this was his pattern, simple. Again, not, not amazing, and, and, and just, but just simple, biblical. These are promises like the Lord made to us. But he's seeing those prayers answered, and he's, what he's saying is we're falling short because we won't continue, and we won't really believe that, we, that he's, he's giving us these things. Yeah, oh, what, a, what an amazing life of prayer that he had to think of 50,000 answers to prayer in his life. One famous, uh, famous little experience I'll just read for you. There are many, many experiences uh, that you can read about in his life. But um, one time he was, this was during his travel period, and a well-known evangelist related an incident. He said, he, he, he was talking about his trip to America, the evangelist, and he was saying, when I went to America many years ago, the captain of a steamer was one of the most devoted Christian men I'd ever known, the evangelist said. When off the coast of Newfoundland, he said to me, Mr. Inglis, the last time I crossed here five weeks ago, something happened which revolutionized the whole of my Christian life. We had George Mueller of Bristol on hand. On board. I had been on the bridge for 24 hours and never left it. There was a dense fog. I'd been on the bridge for 24 hours and never left it. George Mueller came to me and said, Captain, I have come to tell you that I must be in Quebec Saturday afternoon. Well, it's impossible, I said. I said, It's impossible. Very well, your ship cannot take me. God will find some other way. I have not broken an engagement in 57 years. Let us go down into the chart room and pray. I looked at that man of God and I thought to myself, what lunatic asylum can this man have come from? I never heard of such a thing as this. Mr. Mueller, I said, do you not know how dense this fog is? No, he replied. My eye is not on the density of the fog but of the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. He knelt down and he prayed one of the most simple prayers. When he had finished, I was going to pray, the captain said. But he put his hand on my shoulder and he told me not to pray. First, he said, you do not believe he will. And second, I believe he has, and there's no need whatsoever for you to pray about it. (laughs) I looked at him, and George Mueller said, Captain, I have known my Lord for 57 years, and there has never been a single day that I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, Captain, and open the door, and you will find the fog is gone. I got up. And the fog was indeed gone. (laughs) On Saturday afternoon, George Mueller was in Quebec for his engagement. Hmm. 
There are many such stories of his life. What an amazing, amazing believer in the Lord. He was once asked what his secret was, and he said this, famously he said this. There was a day when I died, I died, utterly died. As he spoke, he bent lower and lower, just got lower and lower, till his, you know, his torso was even with the floor, (laughs) almost. Died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, taste, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and my friends. And since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Well, you know, many years ago when I was a... for a young man, I was going to college, and I uh, <clears throat> I borrowed a book from my father, and it was the life of George Mueller. Uh, George Mueller of Bristol. It was called by A. T. Pearson, it was a contemporary of his and a friend. Some of you may know his name, <clears throat> but. Uh, I, I borrowed this book, and I can still remember where I was 55 years ago when I read this book. And I was sitting outside of the apartment and uh, where I was in college. We had gotten a rented an apartment, some of us. I was sitting out in the sun outside the apartment with that book with the green cover on it, and I was reading this book. And I was so deeply moved by what I was reading. And I get emotional here because um, there, there are not many things that change all of your life, right? Just a few things like that. And I, I read this book, just this life, just like I've been sharing it with you. And uh, I was so deeply moved, I think, by the Holy Spirit as I read it. And I remember saying to the Lord, I want to be a man like that. Yeah, now, I knew... Uh, I knew that I wouldn't, it probably would not mean I would have an orphanage or the scope of the work that he had or whatever. But I was meaning, I, I want to have that kind of flavor to my life where uh, you are actively involved. And um, people can see and t- attribute things to you uh, that only you could do. Because I, I began to learn, I had already begun to learn that God is not so impressed about what we can do for him, but what he does through us, in and us, through us. That's, that's more impressive, right? And for him. And um, so I prayed that way and began to, uh, began, immediately I began to be moved uh, to a certain action, which I'll tell you about in our next lesson, that really changed my life and for 55 years and I hope in some way this has uh, helped you this way as well I, I want to I want to invite you to do two things for me if you want to write them down to remember here's the two things I'd like for you to do one is I think you need to get this book and read some of George Mueller's words okay these are this is George Mueller on his views about money and possessions you better hang on tight to your pocketbook as you read this okay 
because you'll learn some things about his perspective that made him the kind of man that he was, and I think they're biblical things. So uh, consider that. That's out there on the table. But also, can you write down this web address of something new I want to I share with you? Because you can listen to this audio book free of charge that I read 55 years ago, and I want to invite you to do that. It's scroll reader, one word, scroll, S-C-R-O-L-L, reader, scrollreader.com, scrollreader.com. This is a new website a friend of mine has put up of uh, out of, mo- most of the books will be out of the, in the public domain. And this book by A.T. Pearson that I read is on that list, and it's read beautifully. And you can listen to it free of charge, no cost for this at all. You just go to the website and click on and, and listen to this book. And I, I, I want to invite you to do that. Take seriously that this, this opportunity to do that, okay? So that's a great resource for you to actually think more deeply about uh, uh, and, and get more details about this, uh, this unusual uh, man and the experience that he had. Okay, so those are two practical things to do. Thank you so much for listening. And